grace, mercy, and especially peace be yours on this second Sunday of Easter from God our Father and from our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It must have been quite a scene. It was evening, and the heat of the day had dissipated somewhat. The frightened sinners huddled together. They were out of sight, at least they hoped they were, from the powerful governing authority. If they were discovered, they knew that the consequences were likely to be swift, sure, and severe. They might beg and plead and try to make excuses, but there was very little that they could do or they could say that might have any positive effect on the outcome of their situation. The near certainty of death loomed over them. Now fast forward several centuries. Let's reset the stage and replay the scene. Let's change it from outdoors to indoors. Remove one man and one woman dressed in fig leaves, gardeners by vocation. Insert ten men, probably clothed in cotton and in wool, several fishermen among them, and at least one tax collector. You see, you can change the historical context and the location and the costumes and even the characters. But the opening moments of these two dramas start out with all the earmarks of being part of the same great tragedy, don't they? Disobedience and fear. Isolation, even in the midst of close personal relationships. The Lord God walks into the first of these vignettes seeking and questioning the supporting cast. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What is this you have done? Accusations, followed by excuses and finger pointing, followed by consequences, curses, hatred, Conflict, pain, toil, death. Inserted into this litany of sorrows, however, is a bright glimmer of hope. God tells the woman that one of her offspring will crush the head of him who had led her and her husband to the forbidden tree and to the sin that made them cower in fear. The Lord God who walked through the garden seeking His children in the cool of that day on which sin and death came into the world will one day send His Son. This promised one will not only crush the evil on the tree of the cross, but will walk through locked doors on the evening of that day on which sin and death's reign was finally ended. Although Adam and Eve's encounter with the Lord God in the garden and the disciples' visit from the risen Lord Jesus in that locked room begin under some very similar circumstances. 
things then take very dramatically different turns. Both episodes start in fear and in hiding. But while that appearance of the Lord to our first earthly parents leads to condemnation and to banishment, His appearance to our Christian forefathers in that locked room leads to forgiveness and restoration. His words are not accusatory and questioning, but rather consoling. Peace be with you. He says it twice. Not because they didn't hear it the first time, and not because it wasn't somehow effective the first time. No, Jesus gives them his peace twice because it has two purposes. The first is to comfort them and to alleviate their fears. It works. For the word of God always works when and where he wishes it to. Their fears are driven out and they rejoice at the presence of their risen Savior. But the second giving of his peace is not for them alone. For Jesus tells them in the very next moment that they are to depart with that peace. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The second peace which they have received is a peace which is to be carried forth. A message for which they are to be the Lord's messengers, to be His angels, if you will. And rather than barring the way to earthly paradise with a flaming sword and cherubim, like the Lord God had said at the gate of Eden after He had driven those first sinners out. These new angels, the apostles, they would cleave open the way to heavenly paradise with the sharp two-edged sword of His Word. They would proclaim both the law and the gospel to the world. And by this, many would repent and be saved. Adam and Eve had been sent out from the garden in shame and defeat a sentence of death hanging over their heads. The apostles, though, would be sent out with confident trust in the victory, the promises, and the gifts of our Savior. And the very first gift that Jesus gives to them, apart from His peace, is the Holy Spirit. He gives them God. He gives them the person of God who bestows and strengthens faith. And He authorizes them as His called and sent representatives to exercise that person of the Trinity's power. Not for their own benefit and not to bring glory unto themselves, but rather to grant the forgiveness of sins, salvation, and eternal life to those who believe. Fast forward several more centuries. Not quite 20, to be more precise, Many men, many women, many children, clothes of cotton and wool to be sure, but I suspect some polyester and rayon and silk mixed in too. Vocations in education and technology, law and medicine, sales and service. Not cowering in physical fear perhaps, but you still recognize that you have offended God and broken His rules. You have sampled forbidden fruits. You've run away and hidden yourself, both from God and from your fellow human beings. But eventually, and regularly, the Holy Spirit that you received in your baptism, 
The same Holy Spirit who Jesus bestowed on His church in that locked room on the first Easter evening. That Holy Spirit works on you, just as He did on those apostles and upon all Christians of every time and every place. You realize again and again the dark and desperate eternal predicament that you would be in apart from being reconciled to God. You might not truly suffer greatly in this life or be banished from the enjoyment of earthly things. For we all know and we all see a great many unbelievers who live in ways that seem far more pleasant to our eyes of this world. But the Spirit reminds you that in Christ and His peace, you need something if you're going to have any hope at all beyond this life and beyond the inevitable grave that awaits you at the end of it. And it's that sure and certain hope of reconciliation to God and the eternal life which that reconciliation brings that is the only real reason for you to be here today and on every Lord's Day. That hope is given to you in the declaration of the forgiveness of your sins. And it's guaranteed to you by the resurrection of the crucified Christ. Apart from this, apart from this hope and assurance, all the rest of this means nothing. You ought not be here because of beautiful architecture or outstanding music or beautiful stained glass windows. You ought not be here because of friendships, social or work connections, or family relationships. You ought not be here because having your name on a church membership list gives you a tuition discount or the privilege of holding your wedding here. You ought not be here because you happen to like the way that I write a sermon or the way that Pastor Knuckles delivers one. Because none of those things really matters when God confronts you in your sin and asks that question, what is this you have done? What truly matters is not what you do or think or feel or like or dislike about this congregation. What matters is what God does right here for you for me, and for those sitting all around you this morning. He ends your warfare with Him and your alienation from Him by declaring peace unilaterally. Beginning when He first grants you His Holy Spirit in the moment of your baptism, or when the Spirit worked upon you through His Word to turn your proud but fearful heart to Him in contrition and repentance, that peace is yours because He has made you His when His message of salvation in Christ alone reaches you through the music or through the architecture or the windows or the art in this place where He has promised to be with His gifts, then you have reconciliation. In the declaration of the absolution after you have confessed your sins, in the reading and singing and chanting and faithful preaching of His Word, no matter how eloquently or no matter how clumsily it might be done, the Lord reaches into the hidden confines and into the hiding places of your life and He scrubs your soul clean. Do not think that this is anything that you had anything to do with or any part in, for the guilty soul hides from God and fears even to come to Him. But the Holy Spirit that Jesus has given to His church and to you draws you out from your hidden place behind the shrubbery, out from behind the false security of locked doors, and that Holy Spirit moves you toward Jesus.
And isn't that what reconciliation and peace are all about? Being moved closer and closer to the one from whom we've become alienated and in conflict? And yet God, for the sake of the sinless life and for the suffering and death of Jesus, has declared that conflict over. Jesus has defeated the root cause of your conflict with God. He has beaten the devil. He has beaten the world. He has even beaten your own sinful nature. He has not only destroyed their power to ever master you again, but with His resurrection, He has destroyed the possibility that the consequences of your sin could ever fully separate you and any of His faithful ones from Him, either now or eternally. So don't let your worries and your fears of God or this world make you hide yourself or separate yourself from Him and His gifts. Don't let your personal preferences and your worldly priorities lock you away, keeping you from coming here to where He comes close to you and where He makes Himself fully known. Listen. Listen for His word of peace. Go not your own way, but be sent in the way that He would send you. Receive once again His Holy Spirit. And at His altar, let Him give you the same crucified flesh and blood that He showed to His disciples that you might have both peace and comfort. And may that peace of God, which surpasses all of our human understandings, keep your hearts and your minds in our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.